Everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We are very happy to welcome Alan Ray uh, on episode 46. So without further ado, Alan, thank you for being here. Hey, Dave, that's uh, probably way too generous for me, but uh, I appreciate the invite and I'm grateful to uh, be able to participate in this kind of growing community that you have going here. Absolutely. Uh, my uh, my journey started out uh, right out of high school, got a job working on a drilling rig, and I'll never forget my uh, absolute first experience in the oil field was at a McDonald's at 10 p.m. in a small Toyota hatchback, and the driller and Derek hand picked me up. I got in the back seat, and we had about a 40-minute drive, and during that drive, the the driller started to ask me questions. As soon as he found out that I was, I had no experience, my first time ever going to a drone rig, he spent the next 30 minutes screaming at me and is so furious that they sent him a worm and why would they do that? And if he would have pulled that car over at any time, I'd have walked home. But we got there, I got through the first night and that really set me on a journey to go through, really uh, a journey through working through on a drilling rig where most of my career was offshore. I got a chance to um, go through all those positions on a drilling rig, all the way up to working as a tool pusher. And I got a opportunity as a tool pusher to be asked if I wanted to start to work towards becoming a company man. And at the same time, I had an opportunity to go and do a short apprenticeship to become an electrician. And so I chose take the path of become an electrician that transgressed into um, really working into instrumentation. And then I did communications and this is all offshore on multiple uh, offshore platforms. And, and then uh, I quit um, 2004. I quit my job. I sold everything I had. We bought an RV and uh, I took my wife and my three kids and we traveled for a year in an RV Ran out of money in Buffalo. I had to use a credit card to get back to California. And on the way back to California, I, I got this crazy job offer to become a, uh, a senior programmer for a company down in uh, Ventura. And I had very little programming experience, but I took the job and, um, and it was turned out to be one of the greatest uh, kind of choices I had as I moved into working with Alan Bradley and Wonderwear. And really be, being able to start to see what was possible when you would collaborate with a vendor who was really willing to that works with me we have spent the last seven years replacing our well replacing a hmi system with ignition and um and then i also hold the title of architectural architect so control systems or operational technology architect so that's kind of my journey to get to me where get me where i'm at today um dave um Sorry, we had a little bit of an audio issue. Uh, I'll let you follow up for a couple of questions while I figure this out, but I think we're back on track. Everything is good. No, that, that's, that's fantastic. So, Alan, I, I think that it's an amazing background, right? So I remember the first time you and I had this conversation. I think it is, it's an amazing background. 
was there, would you say that there was any one thing that kind of led you down from that first night getting in the back of the pickup truck to, to where you are now? Or is it kind of all of the series of, of questions? Or, or maybe more so, how did you go from being a worm, as you called it, out on a drill rig to being a senior architect or an architect? Was there, was there one kind of like part of the business that you were very interested in and loved? Um, I think I, I would go back to when I was 15 years old and my dad had owned a business. The business, um, actually the, the person that he bought everything he did for his business got sold. And so his business on a Monday, he got a phone call and said that his business is going to end on Thursday, regardless of what he wanted. So he ended up having to go back out to the oil field and he got a job as a technician working on steam generators. And he, so he was, um, he was a foreman and a roustabout and, for, and worked his way up to a foreman of our steam generators. He never was a technician, but he got this job as a technician because he needed a job. And I'll never forget it. I came home from school and he had this electrician's truck, right? It had the wire rack on it, it had the bins on it. And he had this transmitter on the back of his truck. And he was looking at this transmitter and he was going, you know, and I, it, what it, when I walked up, I swear it was like somebody that, who couldn't read holding a book upside down, not realizing the book was upside down. And I was just dumbfounded. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? And he said, Oh, right, tomorrow I have to work on this and I got to figure it out because I got to figure out how to fix one of these tomorrow. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm a technician. I said, I'm like, you can barely change a light bulb, right? A 15 year old kid thinking his dad is right. Um, but it, it set for me because my dad made a comment. He said, look at somebody has figured it out. And if somebody's figured it out, I can figure it out. And so I have just, that just was cemented in me all those years ago. And, and anytime anyone ever asked me, can I do something? I say, yes. And through God's grace, I'm able to get to the right person, get to the right YouTube channel figure out how to do it. And uh, I can typically work my way through it and solve the problem. And so where other people may have not taken some of the opportunity that was given to me, I became electrician after a five week apprenticeship. So my apprenticeship was five weeks. Right. And so what ended up happening, it was, again, it was this, this circumstance where the, the person that was doing my apprenticeship didn't know he was doing my apprenticeship. He was, he literally was a 65 year old man on offshore drilling rig named Horst Sharpland that was just trying to, that had a kid that wanted to learn and follow him around. And so he had me doing all his work. Well, I spent five weeks on an offshore platform because I was learning and loving what I was just soaking up. And he was on loan for those five weeks. At the end of the five weeks, he got me, took me to the superintendent's office and said, and they looked at the superintendent and he said, have you found the replacement for me? And the superintendent said, no, but we're looking. And he said, this is my replacement. I'm retiring next week. And he walked out of the office. And the superintendent looked at me and said, can you do it? And I said, yeah. And I came back to the platform the next week as the only electrician on an offshore platform for the drilling that they had electricity down, down on production, but the only one for the, for the drilling rig. And that was my transition to becoming electrician. So I think just the constant ability to learn something new and do something different has fueled my just joy in my career and what I do. And so every, every time I, I go and do something new, I just, I suck it up and, especially when I'm excited about something, I'll get up at two, three o'clock in the morning and I'll work for three or four hours before I start work just because I'm, I'm so interested in what I'm doing. So. And I think in manufacturing, you know, to your point in general, there's a lot of different areas that you can, I would say almost spend a lifetime learning, right. But the, yeah. the learning curve is for sure very interesting, but there's so many aspects you know, and we had conversations with people who are more like mechanically inclined, but there's, again, there's electrical, mechanical process. There's just a lot of uh, like engineering that gets involved in, you know, in, in every industry, 
uh, oil and gas, food and beverage, pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of uh, different fields, I would say, or convergence of different fields. So there's certainly not a lack of, uh, of things to learn. But um, sorry if I, if I missed, you know, towards the end of your introduction, Alan, I wanted to ask you maybe, you know, how did you transition from that uh, maybe electrician's role into controls and ultimately doing like larger integrations and working with uh, like SCADA systems, MES, uh, how did that transition take place? So I was working on the platform for drilling as an electrician and I decided I wanted to transition to production. So I wanted to Drilling works on the top deck, production works on the lower decks. If you work for production on an offshore platform, you have a, a roof over your head. So when it rains, you don't get wet. So I made a decision that I was going to transition to production. So I got a job with a contractor um, inventor that worked on the offshore platforms. And I got this job on these three platforms called A, B, and C. So I was going to be the, the instrumentation and electrical guy for these three platforms called A, B, and C. Off the, off the coast of Carpinteria. And so I showed up and being that I come from kind of an operations background, when I showed up to the platform, I connected with the lead operator. And the first thing I did when I got to the platform is I chased all the process lines. So I followed from the start of the well, the oil side, I followed the water side and I followed the gas side. So I knew how the process worked. And then anytime the lead operator needed help, I helped them, regardless if it was electrical, instrumentation, or process. And I, I was there, and I would help. So three weeks after, after I've been working on this, on this platform, the other electrician that I relieved every time I came to the platform, we were working seven on, seven off. He, when I showed up to the platform, he didn't get on the boat. And the next thing he said was, hey, um, you got to take a test, electrical test. And I laughed in his face, didn't mean to, but I laughed in his face and I said, <laughs> I'm going to fail the test. Like, I don't have the electrical background that I need. So um, and if it's a really technical test, unless it's like an open book, I'm probably not going to pass it. He said, yeah, it's not an open book. So I took it and I, and I didn't pass it. And the superintendent called the lead operator and said, that guy who's on the platform as an INE technician needs to get off the platform right now. The lead operator said, no way, we're not doing it. This guy has fixed more things and he is like, he's, he's great to work with and you got to give him a chance because he's doing a great job. And so I, they kept me and I progressed. I learned what I needed to learn and I was very effective in helping operations and, and, and it was a very fruitful relationship with me and that company. And so uh, really, I think the, the one thing that I can say is just willingness to work hard and wanting to learn. And those are the two things that kind of propelled that for me to, into instrumentation. And the reason I got to do communications. <laughs> so these old platforms had Ferion communication microwave systems, old Ferion. And, they, and the Ferion microwave systems were, you know, they're 30 years old and they barely worked, but they worked. And they're expensive to change, but they had all the test equipment and the manuals on the platform. And I couldn't get anybody to come out and work on these things. So I had to teach myself with the manual and the test equipment how to work on it. Well, I got pretty good at fixing these things when they broke. So the company thought I was like this microwave guy because I could fix the microwave. So they're like, hey, you know, microwaves, we're going to give you a bunch of money and you go change all of our microwave systems to digital. And so... I got to spend three years going and, and doing communications work, which I found out I don't like. I don't want to be in communication. I like programming and instrumentation. So I moved back into that space. I think there's a, an important lesson there. I think, you know, when it comes to maybe traditional degrees and kind of book knowledge versus practical knowledge. And I mean, I can, I can certainly... You know, the, the, the saying that I always give is that some of the or most of the smartest people that I know usually don't have like very traditional education because I think it's the ability to learn something without um, necessarily maybe, um, how to say it, without having the proper, or I guess there's a difference between book knowledge and practical knowledge, right? And a lot of times I think we can, how to say it, contrast the two, but ultimately 
it's different, right? And so you can feel p- the people who have spent enough time and understood the systems versus those who just know the formulas and, or how the process is done. So, um, no, I, I think that's definitely um, an interesting story and example. I'm, I'm sure that not a lot of electricians were able to bypass the, the test requirement, right? And you had to probably prove yourself uh, for doing that, as you said. Uh, I'm curious, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I would also say they shouldn't, right? My my path into being an electrician should not be allowed. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't probably the safest thing for that company to do. Now I'm grateful, and through a lot of really, literally through a lot of just prayer and hoping that I'm not gonna I'm gonna do the right thing. Thing I was able to learn on the job, but that's not. We probably shouldn't be doing that in our industry, but again. It's a matter of being willing to to take a risk and take that chance. So, and also, I think to your other point, what I've one of the things that I've learned because of these opportunities that, that have been thrown my way, and I was I was definitely unqualified for most of them, is partnering with the right people that can that can not just help you, but want to be a part of your success, right? And so, mm-hmm. I would say that I have. I have a lot of relationships with people like Benson and Arlen and these different people, D Brown and Avidine and all these different companies who, who literally want me to succeed. And, and it's because I've worked really hard at doing everything I can to help them and their businesses do better. Right. And so it's that partnership and collaboration that's been very successful for me. And, and I think that's, that's the right definition, right? Because again, I think in a lot of, I would say in a lot of examples, partnerships are almost kind of like a one-way street the way, uh, you know, they're presented to us, but it's important to, as you said, identify people who are, again, willing to give and take in certain instances. So I, I think that's a very, very good point, Alan, for sure. And um, I would and also so- say, to, to just, just to add to that, to, to Alan's point, I think that there's been much more sense of community within especially our industry in the last, you know, 20, nearly 20 years since Alan started working on the Wonderware, you know, AB platform. I think that there has been more and more conversations and desire and need for all of us to get together to continue to do a better job, right? Build better solutions. Most of us have figured out that, you know, Alan and Vlad and Dave can't all go and build their black box and all be successful. And we can't go do and take those black boxes and deliver it to, I don't know, 50,000 clients, right? We all can't do it ourselves. We are much better together as a community. Well, not just that. I think you you, you take a, somebody like like Vincent Hoagland from Opto22, right? And um, if you were to call Benson, which is still somebody you can just call, right? You can get, you can get a hold of Benson. And Benson may or may not appreciate this line. Well, here's, here's the point. If you call Benson and you're asking for something that is really not in their wheelhouse or some, or it is in their wheelhouse, but he knows somebody who actually does it better. Benson will say, man, I would love to do this for you, but why don't you talk to this guy? Cause he can, he can solve your problem in a much, you know, more elegant way or what have you. And so being willing to not just be about getting the job or getting the project, but really building into other people's success, that's what builds community. And very much like your show, right? Bringing different people from different backgrounds together to have these conversations. It is, it, right. I'm, I'm changed by it. I've been my career and the different things and the community that is around me has had a drastic Im- impact on really my success. And so it's giving back to that. No, I appreciate that, Alan. But, uh, you know, maybe to go back to our theme, I want to ask you about some of the, I guess, changes or evolutions that you've seen in the way things are done on oil rigs or, you know, more recently in energy companies, like what are you seeing in terms of changes in technology, changing in the way processes are done? Like maybe talk to us about some of the new um, uh, technologies that you're seeing or are expecting to see uh, soon. I think I learned a very valuable lesson 
2013 mm-hmm. that kind of set me on this trajectory. And so uh, I'm not going to say the name of the company, but we had a certain HMI in our business at ERA and um, we were really struggling with the licensing and, and trying to get them to help us kind of get our licensing right size. And it was, it was a struggle. We didn't know the company was being sold at the time, so they weren't really willing to help us. But um, I was tasked with go out and start publicly letting people know that, that our company is looking for another solution other than this one company we were using. And so inductive automation was one of those companies I just was supposed to go look at. And so I'll never forget it. Uh, Travis Cox mm-hmm. does a, does a presentation with me in 2013. And so we've got our whole team sitting around this table and he's on the conference call. And so he does his little, you know, he's showing all the, the cool little features of ignition where you can put a piece of data in the developer and you see the real life data and all that. And it's, it's cool. It was, it was really cool, but nothing that would have, sold me right and then i asked him a question and i said can you can you just show me how i can get data from my plc to a sql database and he goes oh yeah and literally in two minutes he connected to a database he connected to a a plc he grabbed some tags and he moved it right into a sql database dropped the table onto a a screen did a sql query and i saw the data come up that moment was the moment I said, that's it. I, I have to get this software to work with our company because we were, were such a data-driven company that having the ability to move our control system data into our ERPs and SAP and all the different places we want to get the data, it was so complicated to do that. So I started this journey in 2013 that took us to 2015 where inductive automation was not fit for, for ERA. They were not, we could not deploy them because they just they weren't set up for our kind of criticality and our system and our size, right? Back in 2013, I'll never forget going to uh, different, different conferences. Or di- the first ICC I went to, everyone was talking about, we have these huge applications. They're like 10,000 tags and 20,000 tags, a huge 25,000 tag ap- application. And I'm thinking my pilot is going to be 100,000 tags. We have 14 million tags that we need to, to get into a system. Mm-hmm. And so I kept communicating with inductive saying, stop saying that you have a large application because you don't even know what it is yet or what's capable yet. So it took us two years to get inductive automation really fit for purpose for ERA. And that, that two years set me off on this journey of, okay, I get it. I understand how we can start to use technology in industrial control space to be effective. And here's, here's the key. There is not any application that you're going to go buy off the shelf and it's going to be fit for your company. Now, you can go pay a lot of money and get really good at, but I mean, look, I'm a, you could cut me it, before 2013, I bled wonderware. Right. I, I was that guy. I loved it. I loved Alan Bradley. And, and you pay a premium for that. And it's hardened and it's industrial. And But if you're going to try to push the envelope into what could be possible, the only way that's going to happen is if you take the time to actually go and do the heavy lifting of helping those vendors get their product to a state that's going to be fit for purpose for what we needed to do. So Mm -hmm. what did I do? I took my team to inductive to Folsom four times a year. And we spent a week with the developers with Travis and we bring in Carl and we bring Colby and we bring these guys in and we would help them understand what we needed. And Travis and my team would build custom code. We would go back to the company and we would test it. And if it worked, we'd say, okay, this needs to be baked into the application because we don't want custom code in our application. So that that set me off on a journey. What's interesting is today, if like air is very structured and and we're very tight on the way that we purchase things and and procurement and all that. If you were to formally try to get a system into era through the architecture board, 
you have a hard time if that company is not established, like has a big uh, de de deploy or implementation uh, size and has been around a long time. It's very difficult, right? Because they don't, they feel mm -hmm. like, oh, we don't want to take the risk. Well, th that's great. But the best rewards are if instead of going down the road of saying, hey, you need to be perfect and fit for us saying, hey, you have something that we can take advantage of, but we need to work with you to get it ready. So inductive automation went through the process of years of working with them to get it fit, got it fit, installed it, continued that partnership. Canary Labs, right? We brought Canary Labs into ERA. We wanted a time series historian. The first real kind of testing we did wasn't gonna work. Our size and our tag counts were way too big so what did we do? We spent a year, we brought Arlen Nipper in and his team from Cyrus Link, and we brought them in and we had, we had Arlen work with Canary and we paid for that piece of technology, the MQT Sparkplug B to be baked into Canary so that we could use it with ignition. Well, now everything in our company uses Sparkplug B to communicate to our time series historian. But that would have never happened if we just said, you have to be this way. So what I've learned is the integration between vendors and integrators and end users and coming together to make these this technology actually solve the problems that are needed in the business that we, we are in is critical to move the technology forward. Otherwise, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to have a, you're going to have a vendor who's operating in a silo in their little world, creating code and, and software that fits their kind of specific thing that they're working on. Well, if they have something that's super cool and I want to use it, but I wasn't, I wasn't part of that kind of demographics that they were working towards. Well, now I can't use it because, oh man, there's these two things that are my requirements that are must haves that you don't meet. And so immediately when I send out my, when I do my requirements and I say, hey, here's the 15 things I have to have for you to use, for me to use your software. And you don't meet one of the must haves. I, you, you don't even get, you don't even get an opportunity to continue on the conversation. So instead of saying, nope, we're not going to use you, actually start to look bigger, think bigger. How can we, okay, Canary, you don't, you, you your drivers that you have aren't effective. Now I could have said, go back, figure out how to do this, give a spark plug B, come back to me when it's done. It would have never, it would have never happened. Instead, I say, I'm going to facilitate this relationship and this partnership. And that's what we built. And we did the same thing. I had this, I had this vision four or five years ago, because we have all this legacy PLC, right? We got Era still has PLC5s, Slick 500s all over the place, right? Yep. And they're not in critical systems. And they're, and they're you know, we, we got the Purdue model and we've done a lot of work to protect our systems and do all that. But there's still an opportunity to protect our systems, not north to south or south to north, but east to west, right? It, from, from within the control system, if I'm in the, you know, X plant, I want, I want protection this way. So what do we do? I started to want to put a device in a box, kind of like a data diode, but I wanted, I wanted, what I wanted was the ability to connect a device to a legacy PLC, have that, that device scan and bring in all the tags of the device because I didn't want to have a mapping table, right? I wanted to be able to put a utility in a PLC box, connect it, to that, whether it's serial or whether it's the ethernet, and then the device scans the PLC, right? Now I'm talking about ignition. Yep. Ignition in that utility will connect to that PLC. Every single tag in that PLC mag magically comes into that device. Now I want to protect that device. So the I got with Opto22, me and Benson, and I told him, I said, look it, you have two ethernet ports on your Epic. They're segmented. You have a firewall between them. And you have a white paper that says that you can use your Epic for segmentation. And I said, that's awesome. But there's one giant flaw. And that is 
if I have a technician that sits in, a in his office in Bakersfield and he needs to get access to a PLC that's in Ventura and I've put your device between that PLC and my, my network, I have to drive to that device because I don't have any access once I segment that device off. Right. And so what we did was we said, what I want to do is I want to be able to, from Ignition and MQTT, I want to be able to send a command to that, that Epic PLC, or it's not, it's, it's like a, a security device now when you don't use it with any IO cards. But so you put this Epic in, you tie it to the legacy PLC, and then you tie the segmented network to your, to your actual OT network. Now you don't have access to that legacy PLC, but Ignition sits in between it. So Ignition can pull the IO and broadcast to the broker using MQTT, but you still can't get access to that legacy PLC. So what we did was we created what we call port forward. So you literally can send a command from MQTT or Ignition that says, create a rule that will port my OT network to that legacy network, the 192.168 network. And it will bridge the two networks. So now, from a for a time base, my net, my technician who sits in Bakersfield can send a command, port the two IP the two networks, and then now they have access to that legacy PLC. They can make changes to the PLC. They can add tags. And guess what happens when he gets done adding the code? Ignition scans it, and those tags show up. Now he can start using them in Ignition. The, the time times out, now that legacy PLC is secure again. That was a dream I had five years ago. And I had talked to multiple people to try to get that made because I, I know our industry is in a space where cybersecurity is getting worse and worse. And we have got to figure out a way that we can protect these legacy PLCs. And what do we do? We literally created a utility that is certificate-based, encrypted, TLS, we close all out or all inbound connections. So you can't even access this device unless you already have MQTT configured on a persistent outgoing connection to a broker. But once that persistent connection is made, now I can send the command, I can port the, the ethernet ports and I can get access to that thing. So that whole dream of mine to create that utility to protect our legacy PLCs because we're never going to be able to tackle this PLC migration problem that our industry has and pulling out a PLC five is going to cost $2 million to replace this giant PLC five. Let's, let's find something under $2,000 that we can put in a cabinet and protect it. So that didn't happen until we got Arlen and Benson. And for a year, the three of us sat on a call every week, we would, in fact, we were supposed to be on that call right now, but <laughs> we're not. But every year we sit on a call and we work through the, the technical problems that we had to cover. And you know what Arlen had to do? Arlen had to make changes to Sparkplug B. And Benson actually had to change his firmware and actually had to make the PR2, which has two gig of RAM instead of one gig of RAM. So you now have a, a vendor who's willing, who buys into the vision to change their hardware. And is willing to, to bring another vendor in play and work with that vendor to create something that is spectacular, right? And so how are we going to do this going forward? We're going to do this going forward with people who can, and, and I've been very successful in doing this, so I'm not saying I'm going to solve this problem, but I think if people could get into the mindset of, especially end users, get into the mindset of collaborating with vendors and, and integrators and other vendors and bringing these things together to really do the hard, the hard work of solving real problems and then executing them. If you go look at Opto22, Benson is now able to have webinar after webinar talking about the security of Opto22. They had amazing security before we did our port forwarding. But now the port forwarding is in all his webinars because it's a big, it's a big advancement for Opto. So I benefit, Opto benefits, 
Arlen's going to benefit because out of that process, Arlen, have you, have you, um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but Ar- what Arlen did for, uh, we were working with uh, Doug Miller at ConocoPhillips and we, we had similar problems. And one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted to get uh, pictures sent via MQTT. So I have a, I, I've got a, um, a device that I need to, to, to stick out somewhere. I don't have the bandwidth, but I want to get, I want, I want a camera to take still pictures and then send that through MQTT. Did it work? So, well, he, this is the thing. Arlen, create, Arlen worked with me and Doug and we created the ability to, so now you can create a file location MQTT, when a file shows up in that location, will break it into different payload sections, send it, rebuild it, and he is doing, I'm, I'm talking, the, the, the number of files he can send, I think he was at like, they were doing like 3,000, oh, I can't remember the size of the, the, the picture, it was like two or 300 meg pictures, right? And flawless, it's amazing. Wow. So, so now, now think that, okay, now Arlen has solved the problem for us that we can, fi- we can send a file, a big file of our MQTT. Okay, well, where can we go with that? Well, how about, how about if we could send firmware updates of our MQTT and then fire off uh, a bit that says, if the, if the firmware is in the location, update my, my firmware. But you but you do that without having an ethernet connectivity. Well, this is- okay, great. Where do you go from there? Right. This, I mean, it's how big can you think? And if you can think big enough and you can get the partnerships together, I'm telling you, the thing is we you know what we call our meeting. We have a meeting every, every Wednesday at two o'clock and we call it the magic table meeting. Have you ever seen that video of magic table? I have not. Go to YouTube when you get a chance and look at the magic table. And, and uh, there's this guy that he's like, his wife comes and, and talks, he says something. Anyway, this guy is like, this table is magic. Every time I put garbage on this table, it disappears. And huh. she's like, are you kidding me? And then he takes her to the, to, to the laundry and he's like, every time I put clothes in this hamper, they magically end up in my dresser folded. Right. Huh. And so... They joke because in our meeting that we have, I literally am just constantly pushing, saying, this is what I want. And Benson and Arlen are both like, you ain't going to get that. I'm like, we can do this. And so we problem solve and we work through it. And, and sure enough, they, we, we end up with being able to create what we've been talking about for years. So I'm telling you, it's just, it is so much fun. It is so empowering to, to, to be able to work with people who are willing to think big and actually execute and be willing to change their product and their firmware to be able to help the, the community. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. What, one question, Alan, out of curiosity, I didn't know that the problem of ingesting all tags from a PLC has been solved. Does Ignition have that Capability because I know that Tatsoft, well, I think they've released uh, an update last later last year. I haven't uh, played with it myself, but I know that they were trying to build something like that. Well, so I need to be careful because it's only the, the platforms that, that I'm dealing with, right? So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. dealing with the smaller scope, I'm not dealing with Modbus, I'm not dealing with Siemens, where only MTTT. It, right? So I'm talking about the drivers that like the Allen Bradley drivers and the drivers that you can connect in, in ignition and it will pull that PLC and bring those tags in. All the it tags works. without having a need to specify yeah, like a Alan, table. All the Allen Bradley platform, it literally will pull in every single tag that, that, that you have. So if you have a slick, a 500 or a control logics, when you connect that ignition OPC UA connector, it will scan that PLC and bring in every single tag that's available. And if you update it, the new tags come in. Hmm. I guess I need to do some digging because I've been uh, trying to figure that out also on my yeah. side. But that, that's that's good to know. Alan, I think we could come up with like 50,000 questions and spend the rest of Wednesday and Thursday just asking about this. 
Um, but I will try to truncate that. And I guess first ask you, is there a white paper that exists on all of this that you're talking about? Yeah. So that's the beauty of me collaborating. So if you go to Opto 22, they created one, right? Mm -hmm. And they have a ton. If you just go and look at port forwarding Opto 22, you'll find a ton of information about that. Go to, um, if you go to, a, Benson did a webinar for ICC called, uh, I think it's called democratizing your data or something like that. Um, but there's a, uh, Benson has a, um, and if you hit me up on LinkedIn, I'll, I'll send you the, the, the video, but uh, he's got a, where he literally in a half an hour takes a Rio, connects it, connects it to IO, connects it to an MQT broker. And at the end of that video, he sets up the, the port forwarding and, and he starts talking about that. So, and he's done, I think he's done other webinars along those lines. So yeah, that port forwarding, it's hard to, it's hard to explain but once you understand it and get it, yeah, like a light bulb comes on because then you realize, okay, now I can actually secure a legacy. I, and it's built in such a way that you can literally stick this thing onto the open WAN yep. and then put a, a PLC below it. And you've literally taken the, almost the entire Purdue model, that structure of segmentation and built it into one little utility. It's well, I cool. guess that's the setup I've got behind me, right? It's not a PLC5 necessarily, but it's a compact logics that's sitting on a private okay. network going through the through the Groove Epic that's on one side on that private network and then on the other side open to the world. And so that's, yeah. Yeah. it's pretty slick, man. Mm -hmm. So I, I have certainly read and I think heard of Benson talk on specifically the port forwarding. I don't think I necessarily comprehended everything that it could do. And uh, until we had this conversation, Ellen, and, and honestly, I, I imagine that there are probably lots of people in, in the same boat. So I guess first, thank you for uh, th thank you for explaining that. That is th that's amazing. Um, I'm going to let my mind continue to melt while I ask Glad to play the sound, and we have some people to thank. There we go. Awesome. So uh, we want to thank Opto 22, the people that we've been talking about for the last 35 minutes, because they have awesome products and do awesome things with folks like Alan uh, for sponsoring this theme and all of their support um, of the show. So for over 45 years, OEMs, machine builders, systems integrators, IT and operational personnel have looked to Opto 22 for innovative for innovative automation products at an affordable price. For VOPC, Opto22 co-wrote the spec as one of the founding members. Ethernet IO, that was them as well. How about PACs? Them again. Today, Opto22 designs and manufactures industrial control and IoT products like the Groove Epic and the Groove Rio that bridge the gap between IT and OT with a following a core philosophy of open standard-based technology. And I mean, this is normally the time where I ask if you have like thoughts on Opto 22, Alan, but as, as we've just spoken such amazing things about Opto and, and I, again, I, I don't think any of us in this have anything other than fantastic, amazing things to say about Benson and the whole Opto 22 team. Uh, well, let me, for, let me, I know we're running out of time, but let me tell you where to, to kind of tie this back into your webinar, right? Yep. Let me tell you where I think we're going as an industry. With all that I've said, where, where I want to do next and my big vision next is taking and, and connecting with, with critical or like what I'm calling trusted integrators. And we're going to, we're going to solve the problem of how do, you, how do you provide a control system as a product? How do you do that? How do you, how do you as an end user call up an integrator and say, I need a control system and, and it not be what it traditionally is, which is, okay, send me your P and ID. I'll create a control narrative from scratch. I'll, I'll create the PLC code. I'll create the, you know, or may, or even worse, if you have to go to an engineering company to do one, then you have to go to a different company to do PLC and then a different company to do the HMI. What I want to do next that I think is going to be transformational is let's do the engineering once. Let's do the templates one time. Let's build out these PLC templates so they incorporate not just the P and ID and what the control is, 
but build into these templates the properties so that software will just work with it, right? So if you have a time series historian, build the properties that tie to the specific types of tags so that in when you publish those tags to a broker and Canary connects to it, the, the view gets built dynamically. The windows are already ready. When the PLC code gets published to a broker and Ignition connects to that broker and pulls in the UDTs, well, you get a, a an application that's mobile responsive with the box and the templates are already built. So they literally, you just, you, you subscribe to the broker and then you drop these UDTs on the screen, the graphics show up and it's just plug and play all the way through. And so I think that, um, I think one of the things that we can do as an industry to really help some of these, especially specifically these end users that don't have an engineering department, that don't have a controls department, I think we can, we can give those types of, of middle kind of mid-sized companies an opportunity to have not just good control systems, but kind of that next level goodness that, that I've been able to experience, but worked seven years to get to. Well, let's, I want to take all that learning, bake it into a box and then partner with these integrators so that, that they can, they can then sell this thing away. Right. So I think Eric could use that. I think that, I think it could be something really impactful for our industry to be able to start thinking about a control system holistically with these services. How many times have we struggled at the end to try to connect services to our data because it's so it's created just with the mindset of a PNID. Let's, yeah. let's do that holistically, offer it as a service and just let it work. So that's where I think we're going. And I think, you know, to your point, Alan, we don't always, again, being in maybe more engineering roles, we don't always realize the full extent and cost of getting data points into our, again, like historians in the right fashion, data that makes sense. And so a lot of times these projects can drag on and be extremely, extremely expensive. And obviously yeah. off the stream, we talked about some numbers, but I think there's definitely an issue in how these projects are currently run. And there's an opportunity in streamlining uh, the process for sure. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I think that we all agree on that. And Alan, if and when you figure out how to do that, you let us know and we'll get you back on and we will have an entire hour and a half discussion it's on a, how uh, you're planning to do that. It's a dream that I've been thinking about for a long time, but I think that that through my relationships with chairing the Ignition user group and my connections with people like Benson and Arlen and D Brown and Scott Rush and these guys, um, man, I think they could be pulled off. I, I love that. I, so, so we, of course, have many questions, right? We've got some, some final wrap-up questions. But, but you made a really, I mean, you made many good uh, comments, but you made a really good comment about kind of community building and how companies, especially end users, can come together with other companies and we can basically build great things. And I think everyone in this conversation is is in agreement with it. And I would imagine the two or 3,000 people that listen to this are all going to be in agreement with it. You said that you've done a really good job of that throughout your career. How can we do a better job as an industry or a better job as a few thousand people listening to this? The, what, has, what has done me really well in that area is humility and really working on making sure that that I am out for the good of those I'm partnering with beyond what I'm going to get from the, the, the collaboration. Mm -hmm. So if I have set the, the goal as, yes, I'm doing this because I'm paid by a company and I want the, I want this company to get value from these, this technology, but I don't want to do anything unless Canary or Opto or, you know, Arlen's company or whoever is going to also benefit from it. So it's it, instead of saying, Hey, you got something to sell. You got to, you have to bend to my needs or I'm not going to buy it instead to say, Hey, let's partner. If you're successful and more successful and I'm successful, we both win. And so when people actually believe that, and then they start to trust that that's true, 
that's where not just community starts, but true relationship. And so I, again, like I said, I have, I have people that I talk to on a regular basis that want my success. And the reason they do is because they know that I, I want their success far more than, than I want my own. So I think you guys have done a good job of serving other people, bringing people to have different voices, have the opportunity to be able to speak on those things that are important to them. And I would just say, man, you guys are doing great. Just continue, continue to lift up and build up other people. And with that, you're going to be, um, and you're going to be successful. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I know Vlad appreciates that. Uh, as we talk about at least once a month personally, the making it to episode 46 was never the goal. Having amazing conversations yep. it was always the goal. And we're happy to, to have you as part of this, Alan. And, and we are honestly blessed to have all 45 of the other conversations we've had and all of the amazing community support uh, throughout all of this. Um, and with that, we want, we want to run into uh, a couple of what I am deeming slow rapid fire questions where we ask you a couple of wrap up questions. Um, so, so first, you have so much career experience, right? And I feel like you already gave us some career advice, including say yes, and also sometimes you shouldn't be an electrician after only five weeks of training. Uh, but, but if you had to give someone either looking to get into the industry or maybe mid-career in the industry a piece of career advice, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, very first thing I would say is humility and don't come in acting like you know everything. I, I think that often, like especially, especially kids coming out of college, so we hire and try to onboard a lot of these uh, graduates, right? And um, man, th those kids that come out of college that are willing to to really listen and work hard, man, they, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air for us because what we're seeing and, and I don't think this is a bad thing. I just think it needs to be recognized by the students, but what's, what's some, something is changing because we're starting to get students in the interview process asking what's in this for me. What are you going to do for me? What's my benefits going to be? How are you going to serve me? And and I think a lot of companies are trying to do that well and trying to give good benefits and trying to serve people. But if you really want to come into an industry and, and grow, if you were willing to take maybe less benefits, less of a, of a starting pay than you think you're worth and work hard, listen, watch, I'm telling you, those are the people that I look for as a, as a formal leader that says, I want to build into that guy and I want to make him successful. And I want to do, I want to, I want to, I want him to grow and improve because so often if somebody's like, you know, com combative, com combative or just like, I want my way, it, it becomes very difficult. So work hard, listen, be willing to do the, the things that you think are below you to, to, to be a part of something bigger. I think that that's fantastic advice. And I think that's advice that many of us can consider no matter where we are in our career and a little bit of humility uh, will generally make all of us better every single day. So thank you for that, Ellen. Uh, next question is, do you have a, a book recommendation? Um, uh, we like to joke that this is the not sponsored audible section where I ask you for a book recommendation and Vlad immediately goes and downsells it. So do you have a book recommendation or a couple book recommendations? I'm going to give you a name and tell me if you can tell me who the author is. It's not luck. Dr. Goldrat. Okay. Oh, so, really? Dr. Gold, Dr. Goldrat wrote the book, The Goal. Yes. A lot of people don't know that there is four other books that are almost identical to the goal, but they, they impact different industries like sales yep. and different things. Fascinating. So I'm a big component of theory of constraint. And here's what's interesting about theory of constraint. I think our industry has done a disservice in the lean, um, lean yep. space because we focus on lean and waste so much so, but we forget that we have to apply those principles to the constraint. So again, if you have a process, a critical chain of process, and you have raw inputs coming in and you've got some kind of widget coming out, 
if you apply lean principles to one of the processes that, that already ever produce your, your constraint, then all you've done is made that produce more and you're building more inventory up around that device. Right. So if you will focus on the constraint, mm-hmm. find that constraint and then apply these lean methodologies, you will actually produce more at the end. So those four books, critical chain, the choice, it's not luck. And isn't it obvious are absolutely great reads. If you like the goal, I highly recommend it because each one of those books gives you a little bit more of an insight into that theory of constraints and from a different viewpoint. And it's fabulous. The second one, as far as leadership, the very best leadership books I've read are from the um, Arbinger Institute. So it's the leadership and self-deception and it's the anatomy, the anatomy of peace. Both of those books are written in the same kind of uh, way that the goal is written, right? It's a story that you're reading. It's not technical. It's you're, you're following along a story, but absolutely great um, books around leadership and what it looks like when you, get yourself in a box. How do you get yourself out of that box? And, and so those, those would be my recommendations. And then currently I'm reading uh, a book called soundtracks by John Acoff, which is a really good kind of thinking big picture and uh, challenging convention type of a book. Interesting. So we have had a number of uh, Dr. Gorath's books uh, suggested, uh, especially the goal has been suggested two or three times um, every time I find another book or another section of what he does, it, it all, I'm literally shocked he was able to produce so much. I know yeah. he likes to joke that he retired when he was 50. Um, then he was working again, probably twice as hard with other institutes when he was 60. But um, it, very, very interesting. T- TOC, we should, TOC is just a whole other conversation that, that we yeah. can and, and should have. Um, again, Alan. Uh, so yep. perfect. Thank you for that. Uh, and then last question uh, for you from my side is, is who should connect with you, Alan? I think um, anybody who's, who is, anyone who's heard this podcast and is like got excited or been like encouraged, I would love for you to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And as I continue to build out this, this network of people who want to really be impactful and transformational in our industry and are willing to be those change makers who are willing to do the hard work to get this technology fit for really solving problems, right? Absolutely. No, no, perfect. I appreciate it. Vlad, we are not 35 minutes over. So I will ask you, do you have one last question for Alan? Oh boy, there's a lot of, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I would say, honored to have people who have so much technical knowledge uh, to share with us, you know, and it's it's always, I think, a very good conversation to have. I have many, many questions, you know, especially, I would say, you know, on the product or the solution that you're trying to build, maybe what kind of, uh, like, pushback do you expect from our industry and how are you hoping to overcome those? Because I think there's inevitably going to be challenges and I, I'm, I'm curious what you're expecting or, you know, because I think like that starts good conversations too, because that's ultimately how we need to change or what we need to anticipate in terms of transforming the industry. So there's, there's two answers to that question. The first is the, some of the integrators that I've been talking to that I'm wanting to partner with to create this thing that they're going to sell. Um, the first is the demographic. My first thought was the demographic needs to be like Ikea. So if you ever go and do a study on demographic and and look at, um, really trying to look at companies who have focused on a demographic and been very successful, Ikea stands out above most, right? And what did Ikea do? Ikea said, if you want to have control over the color and the fabric of your furniture, you will not be a person who's going to come to Ikea and buy furniture. But if you're willing to buy furniture that has, you know, two colors, three colors at the most, that if you're willing to come to a place that, that you will not get 
a Ikea person to help you in an Ikea store. I don't even know if they have people like literally every time I've seen an Ikea person in an Ikea store. And if I make eye contact with them, they like go the other way. And so when you go to, an, if you're willing to go and do the work yourself and figure out, okay, what's this? So, so Ikea has a very specific demographic. And my thought was for these integrators that would be selling this thing, if they ever you know worked with me and created it, my thought was, we're going to have to go to people who are not brand people. Not, if you're a branded person, if you're a only Alan Bradley person, you would never want to use this, this product, right? Because it's not going to be, it's going to be most likely like an Opto 22 Epic PLC. So, and then I started to actually, I, I was working with some of the integrators and we were talking about this and we started to, to realize if we did all the heavy lifting at the front and we offered these services and kind of just baked them in, the cost of this box is a third of what the, a traditional, you know, of what a company like Air Energy would do, right? It's a third the cost. Well, now if you could buy a control system for a third of the cost, get it and then put your own HMI code in it, put your own engineering in it, whatever you want to do, you're going to be farther ahead doing that than doing something from scratch. So, so you could go, there could be a couple different ways, but you're never going to be able to overcome the political and cultural barrier of mm -hmm. technicians that just, and look, I, I was one of those people, right? So I, I get it. I, it's hard to learn new code and, and new ways of doing things. Right. And, and so I understand that, but at the same time, if you say, that's great. If, if your company can afford that and that's what they want to do, man, I will still come and help you like with ignition or with whatever you want. I want your success regardless if you, you know, want to be a part of this other thing, but I think if you're a water company or you're a, an agriculture company and, and you need a control system and you're, you're tied to go to some integrator and then that integrator is going to sell you Allen Bradley or is going to sell you their brand that they like to use because they get the most benefit from it. What if you had a different choice there? What if you could buy something that was already built, already ready, shows up, a little bit of configuration and you get not just the PLC code, but along with that, you get a time series historian. You get data quality, right? There's a company called Aperio that, that, that uh, it's a vendor that we're looking at at ERA. And I'm talking to about, hey, this would be something that would be amazing that if it was baked into the PLC code, your data quality of every sensor literally on the side 24-7 is just evaluating your data quality of that sensor. And then you get notified if there starts to be oscillating, like a PID loop starts oscillating, mm -hmm. or if if there's like a, a big change in that sensor that, oh, there's an anomaly. You would never catch that unless the system goes down and you start troubleshooting and you're like, okay, well, what's, you know, you start looking at the trends and you start looking, well, what if you could know as soon as it happened and that was baked into this solution? So, I think there's so much opportunity to to look at the holisticness of a control system and just build it in and then when the people very much like the port forwarding when the people get it when they when it clicks for them and then they get to experience the goodness of it then all bets are off i think it's going to be transformational yeah no i i definitely agree with you alan i really i have Many more follow-up questions. I think, you know, uh, we teased the theme a little bit. I want to mention that for next month, which is going to be cybersecurity, because I think that's the other maybe side note for today, but that's the other component of a lot of these systems. I think cybersecurity is going to be an important, um, I would say, aspect of these integrations. But I, I really, you know, I appreciate your thoughts, Alan. I, I think there's a lot of really good information. I really hope that our listeners agree with that as well. I think if I was to kind of add something to that is at least consider other options, right? Like there's a lot of, I think, new technologies that are coming out and we've spoken to that with uh, with several vendors. But if you're 
maybe just locked in into like a single vendor, it's worth exploring uh, what else is out there because there could be, again, added benefits to just uh, having the controls for sure. But I think it, it's definitely worth having you on, a, on another discussion, Alan, because I have many more questions, yeah. but I think we do want to be respectful of, uh, of your time and everyone else who is, who is listening. David, yeah, I Sorry. wanted to say th thank you for those thoughts, Vlad. Thank you, Ellen, for being here. Um, with that, we will generally try to be respectful of everyone's soft hour worth of time and, and kind of wrap it up, say thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you're listening on a podcast or you're listening on LinkedIn, go and drop us a thumbs up. Subscribe to the Manufacturing Hub LinkedIn page. Go rate us five stars on Apple and Spotify and Audible and all those other places. Throw us a follow, download our podcast. It helps the algorithm. I generally tell people we don't really know how it does, but we actually do know how it does, but it's too long to explain here. So go ahead and do those things. And until next week, we'll see you guys all soon. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, everyone.